The words that will be the focus of our attention today are found in Matthew 18, verses 12 through 14. 12 through 14. Jesus is speaking, and he says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would come now and work to illuminate the scriptures and help us to understand. Father, I pray that you would be with your servant. I pray that your word would reign supreme. Father, I pray that we would be enthralled, that the God of heaven and earth would love us, would come after us, would find us, would rescue us, would defend us. Do that for us, Father. Help us to understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. In the Old Testament, we read of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. In the New Testament, Jesus sends out or calls to himself and then sends 12 apostles. In the book of the Revelation, we read of 144,000 gathered before God in worship. 144,000. 12,000 times 12,000. Later on in the book of the Revelation, we see uh, the New Jerusalem, which is described as the bride adorned for her husband, coming down out of heaven. And as that city is described, we read that it has 12 gates that there are 12 angels at the gates, that there are 12 foundations under the wall, and when they measure it with the measuring rod, it measures 12,000 times 12,000 times 12,000 cubed. In Scripture, I think it's safe to say, and then when you study Hebrew numerology, the number 12 represents the people of God. The, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And then we, we see in the New Testament that the, 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 some of the foundation parts, the, the construction materials of this new Jerusalem are, are also sort of paralleled with the 12 disciples and the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember that number 12. We've, we've talked about it before. It's amongst the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ that a quarrel had begun. As James would say, their passions had arisen among them, no doubt, and caused a sort of a verbial king of the hill climb for superiority. They were arguing as to which of them was the greatest. That's the context of, of Matthew chapter 18. Again, we don't read of that argument here. Mark tells us about it. Luke tells us about it. But Matthew goes straight into the question, who is the greatest? Don't forget the context. All the way through the chapter, that is the context. Disagreements and disputes between God's people. 
Now since verse 10, our Lord has been explaining some of the reasons why we should be cautious about sinning against brothers and sisters in the church. And he's, he's doing that by describing the father's own solicitude or, or great personal care for his children. In other words, in verse 10, and I quoted this last week, let, let not earth despise those whom heaven honors. Why? Well, verse 10 tells us in so many words, if God saw fit to commission the angels of heaven to our care, which is what Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, then surely we hold a special place in God's heart. You don't mess with God's children. You don't despise God's children. Well, we come to these verses today, verses 12 through 14. And again, the idea is still, let, let not earth despise those whom heaven honors. And the, the, the rationale today is going to be this. If God will go to great lengths to secure our salvation and then preserve us all the way to the end, then we must hold some special place in His heart. And if that's the case, then we should pay very careful attention to how we treat one another. So I'll begin with just a, a little exposition. We'll just walk through these verses. Verse 12 begins uh, with a, a thought-provoking question, and that question is actually preceded by another question, sort of a, a pre-question. He begins by saying, what do you think? Now, in Jesus' day, beginning a teaching or ending a teaching with, what do you think, was a way of teaching, a common way of instruction. See, when you ask a person, rather than just saying 2 plus 2 is 4, you could say 2 plus 2. What do you think? And when you do that, you're allowing the pupil to situate themselves within the question. That They can't just hear the question and hear the answer. They must think of it on their own. It forces them to consider the details. It allows them to think through a particular scene and, and all of the, the logic and the rationale, and they have to come up with their own answer, so to speak. And so by beginning in this way, the Lord intends for His disciples to think for themselves. So He's, he's prefacing by saying, what do you think? Now sit yourself in this story. That's sort of what He's getting at. In order for the disciples and us to really grasp the concept of God's great love for His people, we have to be able to place ourselves in some sort of analogous frame of reference. See, we cannot fathom God, and we cannot fathom the love of God, and we cannot fathom that that great love from God would be shed upon sinners. And so, even when we read in the Bible that God loves us, or that God is love, or, or, or however it's phrased, we're still using a human reference point to try to make sense of that. God's love is not patterned after our love. Our love is patterned after His. And so instead of just saying, well, God loves you, He says, think about this. What do you think? And He presents a scenario that the disciples would have understood. And He allows us the opportunity to place ourselves into that picture and imagine that we had been there. So, so what do you think? Sit yourself in this picture. And here's the main question. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? It's a word picture. 
And here's, here's the scenario. He's put it to his disciples in the form of a question meant to provoke their thinking, their consideration. There is a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. One of them strays. One of them wanders away from the shepherd and from the rest of the flock. Now again, sheep are not defensive animals or offensive. They are defenseless. So you've got a sheep all along, probably in a treacherous countryside with many hills and ravines, creeks or rivers, probably in danger from many predators, wolves, lions, bears and the such. Um, completely defenseless. Sheep can't fight. They can't even run fast. So you've got the sheep all along. He's wandered away. Not, not really ran away. He's not trying to get away. He's a sheep. He's dumb. He's, he's just strayed. And so Jesus says, speaking of this shepherd, does he not leave those 99 right where they are to go to find that one sheep? And it's sort of rhetorical. The, the answer is assumed to be, of course he does. He's a shepherd. He owns the sheep. This is probably his livelihood. He probably cares for them. He's, he's known them since they were young lambs. It's his duty to watch out for them, to care for them, to protect them. Now, we might think that that's a little extreme. He's got 99 sheep left, right? That's a pretty big flock of sheep. How much could one sheep be worth in the grand scheme of things? What if he were to, to wander off and then another wanders off and he, he loses more? Would it not be uh, more practical just to stay put? But in, in reading and studying the, this, the, the context here, this is assumed to have been the normal practice. A shepherd usually would not have worked alone. There may have been multiple shepherds, and so he would have left the 99 to go find the one. Although attending an entire flock and equally desirous of the safety of all of the sheep, he turns his special attention and his efforts toward the one sheep that has strayed from his sight. So, so you see our Lord's painting a picture of a shepherd who is deeply concerned about every single sheep. Yes, he has a whole flock, but his whole flock is made up of individual sheep. And so when one sheep is missing, the shepherd doesn't see a smaller flock. He sees an incomplete flock. It's made up of, of, of individual sheep. And so the shepherd makes it his aim to retrieve the straying sheep. And Jesus says, what do you think about that? In verse 13... Jesus gives us a statement of truth. He's painted a picture of this loving and devoted shepherd. He's got the minds of the disciples turning. And now he makes a propositional statement. It's not a question. He's stating truth. In other words, he's got us into the picture. And now he's going to tell us about that picture while we're inside of it. The question, what do you think, has led us to certain conclusions. When I describe that shepherd and I ask you what do you think in your mind you're thinking certain things about that shepherd. We've made an opinion about the shepherd and so Jesus takes us a step further into the, the parable and he says, and if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Again, this is just a logical deduction. It makes sense that if a shepherd 
had such an attitude and a disposition towards every sheep that as soon as one is straying, he would go after it. It only makes sense that once he finally has it back, he rejoices. Jesus does not say that the shepherd loves this sheep more than any of the other ones. This is not a, 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 a particular or specific sheep because it strayed he went, but if it would have been any of the other ones, well, he would have just let them go. No, this is just a sheep, just one of his 100 sheep. He doesn't say, well, gee, the, the shepherd really didn't care that much about the 99. This was his special sheep. None of that. He, he's merely stating that when a straying sheep is found and brought back to the fold, it's a time of great rejoicing. The return of a lost sheep strikes up joy and gladness in the heart of the shepherd of a quality that would not have been so if the sheep had never wandered. You follow me? That, that's, it's just it's sort of logic. A new circumstance was created by a straying sheep that has now led to rejoicing. Therefore, he rejoices having found that sheep more than he would have if no sheep had ever strayed. The shepherd is not blandly satisfied. He's not just, you know, whatever. He doesn't shrug his shoulders and say, well, it's good to have a sheep back. He rejoices at the return of this one sheep, which shows more than likely there was probably a great heaviness of heart at the thought of losing the sheep. And this would have been the case for any of the sheep. He loves the sheep. He wants to protect the sheep. He's devoted to the sheep. So then in verse 14, our Lord concludes the parable. He sort of comes back to reality and He ties what He's just said in with the affections of God the Father for His children. In verse 14, He says, So, or thus, in this way, similar to the way I just indicated... That's what that word so means. It helps us to see, it tells us that what he was doing with that parable was trying to help us see something about the Father. Similar to the way that was just indicated in the parable, he says, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Again, who are the little ones? We run back to verses 4 and 5. We find out the little ones or the little one is the one who in humility and childlike faith believes on Christ for salvation. It is a Christian. So he says, it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these, we would say, Christians, one of these children of God, should perish. Now in Scripture, the word perish is used both for eternal damnation and just general ruin, making shipwreck. And so what he's saying is it's not the will of the Father that any one of his children should stray from him, making ruin, a shipwreck of their lives. It's also not the will of the Father that any one of his children should stray, make shipwreck, never return, and find themselves in eternal damnation. You see, the parable holds true. It is the will of the Father to retrieve every sheep that might wander. The Father will bring them back. So here's the main point. It is the will of our Father in heaven when any one of His little ones, His children, begin to stray from His flock or wander from His intimate attention and care 
that they be found, that they be retrieved, that they be brought back. The Father will retrieve those who are His. Now, I think it's important that we understand several things just by way of doctrinal observation because we're, we're piling this on top of what we had already studied in verses 1 through 10. So I want to give you sort of uh, four doctrinal points for consideration and then I'm going to go into three contexts for application. In other words, how does this, this love of the Father play itself out in the community of God's people, the church? Again, we're, all of this is leading to a specific reference to the church in verse 17 of this same chapter. The, the, the context is the corporate people of God. So first, the first doctrinal observation is the potential of stumbling. The potential of stumbling. And this is sort of recap. We see in verse 6a, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Little ones who believe in me. Christians. The subject is Christians. And again, causes to sin is one word in the original. A stumbling block, a scandalon. So the, the, the context is Christians tripping up in their faith. Then we see in verse 7, the world, our present habitation, provides many stumbling blocks, many occasions for us to trip up in our faith, to fall into sin. Verse, verses 8 and 9, again, our own flesh, our, our hands, our feet, our eyes provide us with many opportunities to sin in us. And then in verse 10, he says, Do not despise one of these little ones speaking to his disciples. He's saying even when you gather together as the church out of the world in the, the assembly of God's people, we still despise one another. We have the temptation to despise. So we're sort of summarizing what we've seen in recent weeks based on our Lord's admonitions. We have to acknowledge this. We have to acknowledge the ever-present potential to stumble in our faith. This is what we've been saying for weeks. There's always a temptation to sin. None of us are above falling into temptation. None of us have such a smooth stride in our Christian walk that, that we can't stumble. None, none of us are to that point. In 1 Peter chapter 5, very common reference, verses 8 and 9, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Now pay attention to what he says. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now we usually focus in on verse 8 because we like to picture the devil like a lion sneaking around. But in verse 9 he says explicitly the same thing that you're going through there to his audience is the same thing that all of the Christians everywhere are suffering. You don't have a special plight. All Christians have to be sober-minded, watchful, resisting the devil, firm in the faith. It's, it's, it's everywhere. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, probably more common. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Again, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth 
And he says, that temptation that you're undergoing, Corinthians, that's the same thing that everybody else is undergoing. It's common. All people are suffering the same temptations that you are suffering. So Scripture is clear about the regular, consistent, common potential for temptations to stumbling and sin. It's always there. And that's what we've seen recently. And that's what our Lord has been warning us about, the potential. But then we pile that on top of what we've just read, which is the second observation, the reality of stumbling. Again, we might be under the impression that despite the potential, we read all the way through verse 10, that with proper care, with proper prevention, heeding the warnings of Christ, we might think, well, I can, I can avoid it. I mean, he's told me exactly what to watch out for. Watch out for the world. Watch out for the people of the world. Watch out for my hands and my feet and my eyes. Be careful when I'm around my brothers and sisters. I mean, I know what to do. I'll just avoid the temptations to sin. I mean, there's a potential to sin, but I don't have to fall into temptation. But this text presents us with a parable which summarizes another common truth that's shown both throughout Scripture and in human experience, which is, despite all of our efforts and despite all of the warnings of Christ and the warnings from the Word of God, as sheep in God's pasture, we are prone to wonder. We're prone to stray. And we give in to temptation and we stumble and we sin often. In other words, stumbling, tripping over stones in our, in our path, faltering in our faith is a reality that we have to accept. Psalm 119. The longest of all of the psalms, longest song in the Bible, exalting the wisdom of God found in His perfect law, His perfect instruction, His wisdom, His statutes. In the very last verse, written by a man, when you read it, who obviously spent hours upon hours, days, weeks, years probably, meditating, devoted study of the law of God. In the very last verse, the psalmist says, I have gone astray like a sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Now, if we, we're not sure who wrote the psalm. If David were its author, we know very well of his succumbing to temptation and sin. Probably the most famous story in all of the Bible of a, a man who we, we hold up as godly falling into very bad sin. We know about David's sin. We know about the sin of Adam. We know of Noah's drunkenness, Abraham's two wives, Isaac's lying, Jacob's favoritism, Solomon's promiscuity, Samson's consistent foolishness over and over. We could go on and on. When you read Scripture, you cannot come away thinking that godly people don't sin. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we think we don't sin, we have taken the God who is holy, exalted, undefiled, separate from sinners, we've taken Him and said, yeah, that's kind of like me. That's how I am. We, we've, obl we've obliterated holiness. There's no such thing as holiness if you and I don't sin. 
The reality is you will stumble. You will sin. You and I will give in to temptation and we will sin. We will offend the God who loves us and hates sin. We will do it. And so that leads us to the point that Jesus is making here, summarized in verse 14. Remember, again, he's trying to explain why it is that sin is viewed as so perverse, so obstructive by God. And the answer that Jesus is trying to give is, is that the Father loves us intimately. He desires our spiritual growth and health. And so we would ask again, in what ways can we see the Father's benevolence, His love toward us? Verse 10, we can see it in the extent to which He's gone for our protection. He gives the angels. In verses 12 through 14, we can see His love for us in the extent to which the Father has gone for our preservation. That's what He's saying. It's like a shepherd who would go to find one sheep. That's how God is for us. I say it reverently. God works to secure not only our initial conversion, not only does He save us, but He also works providentially to preserve us in the faith, to hold on to us, to keep us. And that's always been the case for God and His people. Now with that picture in mind, that's always been the case for God and His people. Let's look at the third observation. The Father's corporate concern. The Father's corporate concern for His people. Throughout redemptive history, again, we can see, we, you, you have a copy of God's Word, we can see the people of God stumbling constantly over temptations laid by the world system, you know, the, the nations the pagan nations, they were said, when you go into the, the promised land, don't adopt their ways. They go into the promised land, they adopt their ways. Constantly, by the world system, they're tempted and they fall into sin. The world's people, they would go in and they would intermarry with the, the women of the, of the foreign nations and adopt their idolatry. Their own hearts would lead them astray. Their own kinsmen would tempt them to sin. All throughout the story of God's people. And throughout redemptive history, we can watch and see the corporate concern of the Father as He promises and acts to protect and to preserve those who are His. All throughout Scripture. A lot of people say God helps those who, helps them, who help themselves. When you read Scripture, you see God helping those who not only can't help themselves, but they don't want to help themselves. They want to go the other way. He constantly brings them back. So, you got the sinful pride of the ten sons of Jacob that results in Joseph being sold into slavery into Egypt. That's sin. But what does the Scripture say? Genesis 50 and verse 20, Joseph speaking to his brother says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about, here's what God was doing, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So according to the promises of God, prior to that in Genesis, you could read that and knowing how the story ends, you could say, well really, Judah was the only son that needed to make it out to provide the lineage for the king. The typical church of the Old Covenant however, would be formed 
from a family, not just a lineage. And so God keeps many people alive. When Elijah thought he's the only faithful Israelite left, he's, I'm the only one, what does God say in 1 Kings 19 and verse 18? God says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed the knee or that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now notice the language here, there. The older translations, I think, say, I have 7,000 or something to that effect. But the language here is better. I will leave. I have selected. In other words, God's saying, I will cause to remain 7,000 who have not gone off into idolatry. Again, God preserves for himself a remnant. When the wicked spiritual leaders of Israel were leading them astray, saying, peace, peace, it's so, everything's okay, the prophets would say, when there is no peace, it's not good, it's not okay. Wicked leaders, God promises his people in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, return faithless people declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town, two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. He says, I'm going to gather you back in. Now in a related passage, this is a longer one from Ezekiel, but I want you to notice this language because I believe that this is probably the exact reference that Jesus is pulling from as he tells this story. Ezekiel chapter 34, beginning in verse 11. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture. The mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land. And there they will feed on a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. We come to the New Testament. What, what does our Lord say in John 10? I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. <coughs> Speaking to Jews, remember he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. And again, the focus there at the end, one flock. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But you see, there's no doubt throughout Scripture, from beginning to end, that our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God has chosen a people, a bride, a flock, He's made us into a holy nation. 
And He has always and will continue, again reverently, He will continue to labor for the preservation of this collective people as a whole. Because He sees it as an indivisible whole. There's a quote that I found this week as I was studying from Mark Dever. He says, exclusively private Christianity is fake Christianity. You see, we're born again into the church. We submit to Christ in the church. We experience the means of grace predominantly in a corporate setting called the church. And so we have to affirm from Old Testament to New Testament the Father's corporate concern for His people, chosen as a bride for His Son. And a lot of times we tend to focus so much on the corporate that we forget about the focus of this passage. And that leads us to the fourth observation, the Father's individual care for His people. The Father's individual care. So we've got His corporate concern. Here's individual care. While acknowledging and even emphasizing the corporate concern of our Father throughout history, we must also, with the force of this text, equally affirm and emphasize the Father's individual care of every single one of His children. So that is, that is to say we affirm the corporate nature of redemption. We do not believe merely in corporate redemption, corporate election, corporate atonement, corporate salvation, corporate glorification. We do not believe individuals are insignificant in redemptive history, so to speak. Again... We can prove this from Scripture. In Revelation chapter 17 and verse 8, we read, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. Now notice here the, the, the subject is the beast and unbelievers who will be captivated by the beast. Unbelievers are those whose names had not been written in the book of life. Therefore we could also affirm the opposite, that Christians, believers, those who will not follow after the beast are those whose names had been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Paul says in Ephesians 1, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And this was not just a, a, a choosing of an anonymous group. God didn't say, I choose the category saints or I choose the category faithful, or I choose the category believers. And then he said, all right, now everybody who wants to get in the basket, jump in. That's not what happened. The Father, in love, chose us in Christ and wrote down our names in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. That is, individual names of individual people. The Father's love from the foundation of the world was for the name written on your birth certificate. In other words, from the foundation of the world, God didn't say, 
Christians or just the church, the bride, he said, Paul. I love, I love Paul. If you're a Christian, your name was on his, his mind, his lips. He loved you. And he wrote your name. Again, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. I read from the, the New American Standard. It, it adds a word here that actually clarifies the, the meaning. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I'm emphasizing the word whom because the English standard leaves out that word. But the subject there, whom's, those whom he foreknew, those whom he loved beforehand, these whom he predestined. You see here, Paul, when addressing the pre-temporal love of the Father and the predestination of the Father, does not say that which he foreknew, he also predestined, that which he predestined, he called, that which he called, he justified. He doesn't say that. He says, whom? He's speaking of individual people. He's addressing beings. In John chapter 10, again, we just read this, but let's think about it from a different perspective. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for who? The sheep. Plural. That is many individual sheep. That's what plural means. It's more than one. Many individual sheep. The shepherd has other what? It says he has other sheep. Again, plural. Other individual sheep coming together to make this one flock. It may be significant that he doesn't say, I lay down my life for the flock. I have other flocks that are not of this flock. I'm going to make one big flock. He says, I have other sheep, individual sheep, that I'm going to lay down my life for, and I'm going to gather them all together, and there's going to be one flock. You see, the individual sheep make up the singular flock not to the exclusion of the individuals or the flock. Or, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes, singular, in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, if we were to read this literally, it would say, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that the one believing, or the believing one, the one believing in Him should not perish. Now, in reference to that one believing, I'll, I'll give the whole quote that I read earlier from Dever. He began by saying, true saving faith is always personal. The one believing. You must believe. If you will not believe, you will not be saved because dad believes or mom believes. You must believe. True saving faith is always personal, but never private. And then he says, exclusively private Christianity is fake Christianity. The singular, individual, believing sinner is the one who will never perish. Even though there will always be the potential for stumbling and temptations to sin, and the reality is we will stumble and sin, the Father has a special individual love for each and every one of His children so that Jesus could say, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them. 
and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one is not a, a statement of the divinity of Christ. It is a statement of the unity, the union of Father and Son in holding the sheep. You can't get them out of my hand. You can't get them out of the Father's hand. We're together in this. That's why he said in John chapter 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Can't get Him out of the Father's hand. Can't get Him out of the Son's hand. It's the will of the Father that He should lose none. And so the Son comes down and He says, I will do what my Father said to do. I will lose none. I will lose nothing. Because the Father chose individuals, wrote down the names of individuals, Christ came into the world, born of a virgin, born under the law, laid down His life for the people whose names were written down by the Father. Those same individuals, through the, the, the calling of the Father, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, are given spiritual life, brought to faith in Christ. Those same individuals whose names were written down, whose sins were atoned for, will be raised up and glorified on the last day. You see the Holy Trinity working together in the salvation of the people whose names the Father wrote in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Now we come back to the context of Matthew 18. If the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in unity to bring every single little one to faith and to preserve every single little one through strayings and wanderings, then should we not at least place some sort of high value on each other? Should we not say, you know, maybe I shouldn't despise my brothers and sisters? The answer, of course, is of course we shouldn't. We dare not despise. We dare not cause one to stumble. stumble. We, we labor for the upbuilding of one another. So those are the four doctrinal observations. Now, three quick applications or contexts for applications. What, what, what does this show us that we should do now? Three contexts. First is pastoral. This has pastoral implications. Pastor means shepherd. If it is the prerogative of our holy Father to keep a close watch on His sheep, both corporately and privately, and it is the specific duty of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Good Shepherd to know His own sheep, then should we not deduce from that that pastors and elders under shepherds of Christ's sheep must also keep a close watch on the people of God? Now, you might be thinking, well, you're, you're preaching to yourself, but I want you to hear what the Bible says about what you should expect of your pastors and elders. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. What does he say? Here's your job, elders. Pay attention to all the flock, all of them. Watch them. Pay careful attention. What's the purpose? To care for the church. A pastor is not just a preacher. 
is not just a talking head. A pastor is more than a, a voice and a suit and a sermon. A pastor is an under-shepherd, by definition a shepherd who must closely watch and pay attention to every sheep. That's a pastor, by definition. A man who does not do that is not a pastor. He might be a preacher, might be a good preacher, but he's not a pastor. Which leads to the second uh, sort of sub-point of this, these pastoral implications. The primary duty of a pastor is to lead and feed the sheep on the Word of God. So must we not only expect as a standard, but should we not as a body earnestly desire the application of the Word of God to include specific personal probing application? Should, that not, should we not expect that? That means sometimes, because a shepherd knows his sheep, he talks to his sheep, he knows what's going on with them, that their sermons and the application time at the end, sometimes they're going to come so close to home that as you sit in your seat, you're going to feel like the Word of God has speared you to the wall and everybody's looking at you. You're going to feel like all eyes are on you, but they're not. You're going to feel like you're being personally attacked, but you're not. And you will feel singled out, which might be true because the pastor knows what's going on with you. But that's what we should expect. That's what we should desire. You see, if we like Bible preaching because the Bible tells us what everybody else is doing wrong and what the culture is doing wrong and everybody around me is doing wrong, but it doesn't ever affect me, we don't like Bible preaching. We don't want the Bible to, to affect us. We want the Bible to be for everybody else. Paul told Timothy, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Stay in Ephesus, Timothy. I want to come, but until I come, devote yourself. Preach the word to the Ephesians. You've got a flock there. Reprove that flock. Rebuke that flock. Exhort that flock and be patient and teach that flock. That's what he's saying. Again, along the same lines. If God is seen as a God who would leave the 99 and go after the straying sheep... Stop them, stop that sheep and its wanderings, reroute their journey or pick them up and carry them back, then should we not expect pastoral care and shepherding to involve some sort of interference in my life? I think we should expect that. We, we, should, we should desire it. It's not meddling. It's not stepping over boundaries. It's not getting too personal. It's at the very heart of God as our good shepherd, and it should therefore be at the very heart of every faithful under-shepherd to retrieve straying sheep. That means if you're walking that way, I'm going to come and get in your way to make you walk this way. We've got to interfere. The good shepherd would watch his sheep, and when he realizes, I've only got 99, one's, one's strayed, the good shepherd grabs his shepherd's crook, and he grabs his rod, sticks it in his waistband, and he goes to find the sheep wandering in the wilderness, perhaps fighting off wolves or fighting off bears or, or wading way deep in, in, in a swamp to grab a sheep and bring them back. That's what we should expect from a shepherd. Our God would do this, then why should we not desire it? You see, this has implications for you because it's, it's very easy for a pastor to say, this is my job and I want to be good at my job, but the people say, we don't want that. We don't need that. You stay up there. You talk, 
We'll pretend to listen. When you're done, we'll eat, we'll go home. That's what's what we're here for. That's not shepherding. That's not the church. So it has pastoral implications. Secondly, it has corporate implications like corrective discipline. Now this is, this is exactly what he goes into in verse 15, church discipline. So we'll talk about it more next week. But just for now, church discipline is church discipline. It's not elders' discipline. It's not pastors' discipline. It's not men's discipline. It's church discipline. That means the church is involved. It's the duty of the church as an assembled body to exercise the keys of the kingdom in binding and loosing, saying who's in and who's out as a means of rescue and restoration with straying sheep. So we'll leave that one there. Corporate implications. That begins next week. And then thirdly, individual implications. This is for every one of us. You as individual church members are given the charge to watch out for each other, to care for each other, to use the Word of God yourselves to rebuke, reprove, and exhort with all patience and teaching. Hebrews chapter 3. The writer says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see the potential disaster hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is, he's writing to a church, a group of professed believers. They all, you say, who's a Christian? They all raise their hand. Me. He says, all right, all of you who say you're Christians, exhort one another every day so that no one becomes hardened by sin. That is the preventative care when we know that there is a tendency, a temptation, a, a, a risk of those who profess to be believers to wander from the faith, be hardened in sin, fall away in apostasy, as Jesus would say here, perish. So what's the preventative care? Exhort one another. Everybody, exhort one another as long as it's called today. Now tomorrow is still called tomorrow, but when it gets here, we'll call it today. As long as it's called today, as long as you're in today, you're exhorting one another. It's not just the job of the elders to watch and do all of the exhorting and the admonishing and the warning. We all take responsibility for each other. When we join the church, we sign a covenant, make a covenant with each other saying, I will do this for my church family, and I expect them to do it for me. It's not the Father's will that one of these little ones should perish. How does He see to it that they don't perish? He puts them in a body of people who will exhort them every day. He commissions His people to watch each other. Another thing, an individual implication is what I've labeled, labeled rescue missions. Sometimes as brothers and sisters in Christ, we go on rescue missions. We, we run to the aid of a fellow Christian and we rescue them from falling, from danger, from grave error, from apostasy. We tackle them in their spot and we say, I don't care how you feel right now. You're not going any further. We, we, we go on rescue missions. James says, my brother... This is funny. This is how he closes his epistle. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Rescue missions. Go get them. Bring them back. Saving their soul. And we do this because this is exactly what our God does for us and continues to do for us. 
When we as a church body do this, we are acting as the caring, disciplining, rescuing arm of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, as he protects his sheep. That's what a church does. That's how the good shepherd comes after you. And, and here's what we need to understand. The good shepherd will come after you. Always. If you're looking for a social club or a, a membership like at the gym, you don't want the church. If you're looking to remain anonymous, you're not looking for the church. If you're looking to avoid accountability, you're not looking for the church. See, those other types of clubs and things, they're not really going to bother you that much if, you don't, if they see that you haven't used the elliptical in two weeks. They're not going to call you. They might send you a birthday card, but they don't care. They've got your dues. As long as you don't owe them money, use it. It's at your discretion when and how you use it. The church is not that way because the church is out to preserve souls. Our God is not that way because our God is out for souls. He cares for the church. He cares for His blood-bought children, and He will lose none. Our God will come after you if you are His. And sometimes, when He finds you, He's going to take that shepherd's rod and He's going to snap that leg and break it so you can't walk away anymore. Now that sounds painful, but think of the picture. Your leg's broke. Shepherd's going to have to carry you for a good while until you learn how to walk again. But he will do it because he cares more about your final destiny than how you feel right now. So, as we come to the Lord's table, I want to read one more passage of Scripture. Ezekiel 34, sort of the end of, of the passage I read earlier. God speaking says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I the Lord will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now, of course, we... We know that the final seal of deliverance for God's people was the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ezekiel here refers to him as my servant David. David was already dead. This is a, 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 a typological picture of the, the king from the Davidic line, born of the lineage of David, born in the city of David, the good shepherd, Jesus, who says, I lay down my life for the sheep. I come for the sheep. See, this is evidence. We read this and we realize how this fits in with the New Testament and the apostles as they interpreted the Old Testament. This is evidence that when God says, I will rescue my sheep, I will gather my sheep, one from a city, two from a town, I will bring them to Zion. He's not saying, I'm going to grab a few Israelites. He's saying, I'm going to send my son to, the to do the atoning work to grab them out of the nations He's speaking of the atoning work of Christ for the, the church, the Israel of God, as Paul would reference it in Galatians 6. And it's that atoning work, the, the death of Christ, that we proclaim to one another at the Lord's table. So as the elements are being passed, um, examine your hearts, see whether you are of the faith, and come to the table in a worthy manner.